can't help but wonder sometimes if we bred good flavor out of our food while we were pursuing that perfect looking carrot or tomato. Now, I obviously have no idea since I grew up in the age of vegetables and fruit having to look a certain way or they're not gonna make it to the produce section. Now, estimates are as high as 60% of food produced in Canada goes to waste. And that just ain't right. Somebody and the land put a lot of work into producing that food. But what if we could monetize food waste? I'm Derek Leahy, and this is Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. So my guest today is a buddy of mine, Aman Adetia, who is the CEO of Fair Community. Fair Community, which is really just getting started, it's in its early stages, is a social enterprise based here in Calgary, determined to demonstrate not only the value of food surplus, but also that a food system reimagined can address complex challenges like climate change, social inequality, and economic inefficiencies. Now, Aman really broke into the food scene here in Calgary with his food truck, Eat Naco, which sadly was before my time, so I never really got to try it out. And he also graduated from the prestigious Le Cordon Bleu Culinary Institute in Paris, leading me to my first question, which has absolutely nothing to do with food waste. Aman, is Montreal steak spice the best spice known to man? <laughs> well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the best spice known to man, but I do actually really love Montreal steak spice. What's um, actually in it? It's like onion flakes, garlic powder, lots of salt, black pepper, some herbs. It's not bad. That's it. Like I definitely grew up eating that. And I, like, I kind of like the nostalgia of it. Uh, I was having, having friend having dinner with a friend's family on Sunday and, uh, and their mom suggested we put Montreal steak spice on the, on the steak. Nice. So that's just like, it's just bred into our, bred into our system. Totally. Yeah. It definitely makes me think of summer. I think I could put it on practically everything. Everything? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I do really love it. It does have a ton of salt in it. Um, but you know, I still love it though. A little sodium never hurt anybody. Yeah. True that. All right, man. Uh, let's uh, jump into the fair community stuff. I, sure. I only know a little bit about what you're doing. So, yeah. you know, how did you get the idea? What's fair trying to do? Just let you take it from here. Sure. So um, fair was kind of like loosely founded in about 2013, 2014, when my late wife and I decided to just do something that was an incubator for small food and beverage businesses, because it's a really challenging space to kind of work in. We didn't have a name for it at the time. It was mostly just this collection of micro restaurants, we call them. And we really wanted to kind of figure out how we could tackle food and beverage entrepreneurship and innovation and incubation alongside acceleration. So not just getting businesses started, but also seeing them succeed 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Um, but number two, how a business like that could also tie into the principles that we had for NACO which was real social and, social and environmental justice principles around living wage employment, um, support, supporting of local farmers and suppliers, and uh, being as environmentally conscious as you could be through a mobile food business. So that was kind of like how the dream kind of started. It kind of just sat on the side of the desk, so to speak, um, until fall of 2016, around October. And that's when we really started picking out all those pieces and it grew to what it is now today, um, 2019. So it's been, a, it's been a, a bit of a challenge, but for real hard work, it's been essentially the fall of 2016 all the way to, to now. 
Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned like you'd like to help out agriculture producers with what you're doing. Yeah. How, how how would FAIR do that? I, I know you guys aren't up and running yet, but like, yeah. kind of, like what's the dream in that particular example? Yeah, the dream in that I think is actually providing a framework and let's just call it a cooperative framework for small and medium-sized agricultural producers from all different types of fruits, vegetables, meat, whatever that looks like. And having shared services and then having a place for them to sell their their wares. So for them, instead of going around to 70 different restaurants and trying to sell every single person on, I don't know, buy my perfect potato, I think it's more about the idea, like, can we act as the conduit between farmers and producers and making them a fair certified farm and what that entails, and then taking their product and giving it to our own internal operations and then proving the model out in that sense. Okay, it's really cool. And when you say fair certified farm, you don't mean like fair trade certified. No, I mean fair like how we spell it, F A R E. So we can talk. We haven't really developed a bit of a framework, but we're working on this idea of what would it look like if fair were to be like the independent body that certifies how we grow food, where we can monetize everything from an uglier potato or something that's a little bit too small. What, do lab- what does labor employment look like and all that? Similar to like there's some building standards of zero carbon or high, high or uh, lead platinum and all that kind of stuff. So I think that there is something along those lines there that we could probably look at. And that doesn't really exist currently in the marketplace. Okay. And like, as I've understood from conversations, we've had like food, pay- food waste is really like the entry point into all this. And I'm just kind of curious, like why food waste? It could have been something else, you know? Yeah. I, I think actually let's, 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 let's dive into that a little bit more. I think food waste or food surplus, like we'd like to call it is just a byproduct. It's there as part of the farming process. You know, you're going to get, let's just use the example of a potato. You're going to get smaller potatoes you're going to get knobbly potatoes you're going to get potatoes that look like they're two but are really one and heart-shaped potatoes and so on and so forth we have a grocery store buying system that has essentially said we want potatoes that are of this grade this color of flesh no blemishes and if we get that that's all we're going to buy and that's a challenge for especially commodity products like a potato where you require you know, environmental conditions to grow something. So, you know, we end up with a lot of completely perfect and edible products that we can't actually use because there's no mechanism to purchase it. Now, not all products are wasted. You know, like there are examples of potatoes or tomatoes, for example, that are turned into soup and the Vancouver Food Bank does a great job of that. Now they have a they have a deal with Walmart that all of their surplus tomatoes originally went in to train a lot of the people that were servicing or using the food bank as a service and turning that into tomato soup and pasta sauces and so on and so forth. And now it's actually its own social enterprise and you're going to be able to purchase all of their products through Walmart here pretty, pretty soon, which I think is really rad. Mm, totally. Okay. I know I, one thing I should probably point out, like Amon is not a farmer and he's also not a food waste expert i, I kind of brought him in from the business side but also Amon, you do know a lot more about food waste than you probably give yourself credit for <laughs> you know way more than i do so let's just dive into the food waste stuff and see if we can deconstruct a few things yeah now, when i was researching this episode i was looking into like the different types of food waste and yeah. i noticed it was broken into avoidable and unavoidable do you mind just like explaining the difference between the two yeah so food loss is the discarding of food um, that occurs from production through to processing. That's loss. 
waste is actually discarding of the food during the distribution and marketing to consumers through like a retail or food service or restaurants or grocery stores or, or what have you. So we really feel with our organization that we could actually tackle the food loss side. And this happens in the grading or in handling or something along those lines or in production. So if we can take, say, ugly potatoes, ugly in air quotes, and turn that into a new product, not only did we help support a farmer, but we also created a new market and we created a product that we're going to need anyways, let's say potato-based vodka, and sell that to consumers. And what's nice about that is that now we're actually selling a product that consumers want. You want to go to the store and you want to buy a bottle of vodka. And it's widely considered that the best vodkas in the world are produced from potatoes. Creamier taste, nice texture. And if then we can use, solve an environmental challenge, utilizing food surplus, and also solve a social issue about how we support local agricultural practices and farmers, then it's kind of a win for everybody. And it's pretty rare to get... uh, for-profit organization that creates a win at all levels. Mm. And I think it's because, for us at least, the social and environmental consciousness of our business is actually bred into the DNA. So if you start removing some of those pieces, you don't have a business left at all. And I've said from the very beginning, when we started building FAIR, that you can't build a successful business in an unsuccessful community. And what I mean by that is that all the pieces around that business is your community, not just your customers. I think a lot of people think about, let me build a business, let's call it a restaurant, and customers are just going to come. But in reality, to build a restaurant, you need great relationships with your suppliers. You need great relationships with uh, tradespeople. So when your HVAC goes or a fire department comes inside and is like, hey, your extinguishers, you forgot to get certified, you can pick up the phone and call your call your person Mm. and that happened to me twice (laughs) so (laughs) that's why i know like like actually building that part of the community is more than just the end result it's actually a combination of all the small pieces that end up making the community at large and farmers and especially with regards to to food in general regardless of surplus or waste or loss is has to start there has to start where you get your ingredients from and how you get your ingredients and what the process of of procuring all that looks like all right and uh sources of food waste i'm just curious i I didn't quite go over all the data before i got here but Mm -hmm. like who's responsible for food waste is it just agricultural producers are they the ones that are throwing a lot away or is it more on the processing and distribution side combination of the two i'm just sort of curious what your perspective is on this yeah well according to the new data that came out in partnership with the Walmart Foundation, Second Harvest, and Value Chain Management International that was released earlier this year. Um, For only Canada statistics, we now have a pretty decent breakdown of where our food waste comes from. So right now, about 24% comes from the production side of of the whole pie. 34% comes from the processing side, and then 13% comes from manufacturing. So you've add those three numbers up together, we get a pretty substantial chunk of i'm breaking on my calculator to type this in <laughs> and that thanks for the play-by-play that gives you 71 percent. Okay. so 71 percent is actually in the category of food loss okay 
Then if you look at the other areas, distribution, retail, households, and hotels, restaurants, and hospitals, and schools, and all that, then you get in the smaller percentages of the, of the difference of 29%. Okay. So I think that there is real opportunity to really tackle this avoidable food loss, you know, mm-hmm. that we can purchase and provide value to our customers. Okay. I know like actually a, a common friend of ours, which his name I'm not going to mention because I don't want him to get fired, but he also deals with waste a bit too. And he was saying one of the biggest problems for him when it comes to trying to minimize waste in his community is uh, he puts the blame on grocery stores quite often. He's like these these deals that, you know, yep. buy a wine, get one free. He said half the time people don't actually consume everything that they buy yeah and he said i wish i could do something just convince grocery stores to stop doing these kind of like bulk deals because i would have a really big dent in uh, food waste totally like you know when you take that actually in consideration one thing that you know we've really planned for fair pantry which is one of the one of the business units of fair communities overall operating model is what about if we just had single use like if you needed lettuce there's just a big tub of lettuce leaves and you just buy whatever you need. Hmm. And now you're actually changing people's buying habits. So now there's not like five heads of romaine for $5 when maybe you only need one and throw away four. Cause then in which case you actually wasted $4. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. So not only does it not make any economic sense, it doesn't make any environmental sense and you're not doing justice to just the lettuce. Like what's the point in just transporting it home? And if you're like riding a bike or taking public transit or whatever, you want to go with only what you need. And I think we need to get back into the way we need to shop. And this is why, you know, when we've looked at building what we call our building, so where we house all of our operations, we call that building Fair Campus. And the reason why we call it that is that we want to kind of bring back this idea of people purchasing their products as they need it. Mm. Like we have changed North America and or most developed countries into picking up ingredients on mass and sitting at them, like going for a huge shop every three weeks. And sometimes that makes sense, like laundry detergent, dishwashing soap, toilet paper, things like that. But for food, why does that make any sense? Like if you have a life, maybe similar to other people in our age bracket, where maybe you only have dinner twice a week at home. Mm. Why do you need food for the whole week? Yeah. Do you buy a couple of items for breakfast? Do you buy a couple of items for dinner? And the rest, either you're out and about or you eat out or, or whatever that looks like. Mm. So now actually nothing's going to waste. Yeah, right. Your grocery bill might be a little bit more because right now, you know, you're not incentivized to purchase more products. So it's more expensive to actually buy single uses than it is to buy multi-uses, but you didn't waste any money at the end. And when you start adding up all those costs, that math never makes sense. So even though on paper it looks cool and is appealing, in reality, it's actually not. You've just kind of blanketed over some of the real challenges we have oh then i think it's it's just a hard trend to buck like when i think like when we grew up and putting us together even though i know i'm older than you but uh you know i <laughs> grew up with like mom looking at that coupon thing as soon as you get into the grocery store like we're all about getting those deals with food and that's really that, yeah. that mentality like i get it some people can't afford food and totally that you need to do that but like we got to get out of that mentality we, we need just to find the best deal and the best bang for a buck yeah absolutely and i think when you think about it right if i'm going to the grocery store on sunday and i know i'm gonna go grill a steak when you go to the grocery store and want to go purchase that steak, oftentimes there's one that's like best before, say, Tuesday and 30% off. Well, why do you have to buy the other, the regular one that's not 30% off? Not only are you saving money, 
but you're grilling it then. Mm. And that's the benefit actually of just going to the grocery store as you kind of need. Totally. And like right? other countries like different like, like when I was living in Europe, it was a bit more common to do that. But yeah. in North America, a little less. You yeah, know? it's true. Like North America, well, I guess let's just say Canada, United States, Mexico is a bit different than that's that. That's true, that's true. And then yeah. if we look at Europe or other parts of the developed country, I've never been to Australia before, but I think it's quite similar to, to Calgary, although or to Canada, but I think they do have quite a bit of a of a unique market kind of environment. And then you look at London, they're also like this mass shopping center with a little bit of markety kind of vibe in there. And that's just due to population and, and things like that. And lots of green grocers everywhere. Whereas when you go to like Sweden or I lived in Paris for a year, or other countries in Eastern Europe, the market culture is normal. Not having these like 50, 60, 70,000 square foot grocery stores are kind of a thing of the past mm. or they've never really come. Yeah. You know, like they really do like to support local agriculture. And when you do go to a butcher, then you go to a green grocer to go grab all your fruits and veg and you go to a, like a spice merchant and you do all of that. And it actually becomes like an event. Mm. Whereas now we've kind of like put everything together. And I think one thing that we're trying to really accomplish with Fair Pantry is how do you put, how do you take that idea, put it into a smaller floor plate and create the same kind of environment so you can come inside and grab whatever you need, kind of one-stop shop, but it's not a sprawl of 60,000 square feet. Mm. Actually, I found it really interesting too, when I was doing uh, research for this, I was looking at the FAO data, so the Food and Agriculture Organization. Yeah, from the UN, yeah. Yeah, and just like looking at the different types of waste, and it was funny that roots and tubers and grains, they had some of the highest percentage of waste, but then in my head, I'm like, those are some of the easiest things to store but they also tend to be the stuff that we go buy in bulk. That, and yeah. you can buy it quite cheaply in bulk. So if it goes bad, you're just like, meh. Not but while deal. they're easy to store, it's expensive. Because you either need some form of like mass refrigeration. Totally, yeah. And you need infrastructure behind it. And that's the challenge. So while potatoes last for a long time, if stored correctly, mm. somebody needs to develop that infrastructure. And when you're a large-scale grower, somebody's got to do it. Yeah, totally. And it's more challenging when you're a small or medium-sized farmer, which is kind of like where this idea of Fair Certified Farms comes in, is that is there a way for us to work together? So if you're a farmer and say, let's just use chickens, you only raise 100 chickens. Well, it doesn't make any economic sense for you to kind of do that on your own. Mm. But now if you have 10 chicken farmers that just happen to be your neighbors, now you have 1,000 chickens that you can kind of work with. Mm -hmm. And now the you know, economies of scale are just in your favor. Okay. And now there's a mechanism in place and, you know, two organizations that are wanting to work together. You have this collective of farmers and you have one organization like ours that acts like a big body, but thinks like a small guy. Okay. And that's important. Totally. Okay. And um, I'm not exactly expecting you to have the answer to this question, but like, you argue that you can make money off food waste. So if you can, how come nobody's really doing it right now? I just still, I think, I think there's always been a bit of a challenge. You know, you have large scale commodity farmers that have contracts with grocery store chains that essentially doesn't allow them to sell food products to anybody else. And now we're really starting to see a shift and I've said this recently that I think our third world war is actually climate change. Mm -hmm. And because if you look and see what climate change is doing and what effects it can have, it's way worse than actual combat in mm. many ways because it affects everybody regardless of your socioeconomic status. 
no matter how rich you are, you can't just go buy food if it doesn't exist. True. Right? So money actually gets thrown by the wayside. The quality of your house gets thrown by the wayside. All of those things go away. And what you're left with is just hungry people. Mm, definitely. I would add just a small caveat to that, but a lot of those extreme weather events that are becoming more frequent and more intense, unfortunately, do tend to affect people of, well, kind of in the global south. 100%. Uh, that in some ways, we're, we're kind of lucky. But don't get me wrong, like our food's and, quite global right now. And California seeing, goes, exactly. we're in trouble. But yeah, there is that people in developing countries are probably going to get hit by other things. Totally. Of different severity than we would here in Canada. But I still think when we actually look at the amount of food that we bring into the, into the, our countries and then subsequently waste, not only could it feed people 10 times over, I also think that the narrative of that needs to change. Mm. So while right now climate change is where will continue to impact people that are more marginal, marginalized or more vulnerable than, say, like us, mm. or people with higher socioeconomic status, doesn't mean that it will always be like that. And that's today, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen 10, 15 years from now. Mm. I think we're really starting to see those shifts. Even if you take into consideration, you know, the fires up north, when you have a large scale fire like that, what's the first thing to get going that people need? Water Mm -hmm. and food Mm -hmm. alongside shelter and some other things, the basic human rights stuff. Totally. Okay. So you're going to see some things like that, even though it's not at the same scale, number wise, you're still seeing communities being destroyed by climate events. Totally. Um, let's uh, let, let's try and bring it back to agriculture a little bit just before uh, all, all my subscribers unsubscribe from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess uh, one thing, and once again, not expecting you to have like the answer on this, but you're probably aware of the fact that you know we don't really pay that much for our food, at yeah. least in Canada. Okay, other countries yeah. definitely have to. And what I'm thinking with the food waste thing, I'm trying to figure out how like an uh, organization like Fair can make it worth a producer's while. To actually like pick up those seconds and thirds and bring them into the city and sell them to you because right now they're not really making that much money on the good stuff they're making some don't get me wrong how are you going to convince them on the seconds and thirds how you know that that this is something that they want to bring i guess let me give you an example so a buddy uh, i know farms up in car stairs business deal fell through he had all these cabbages he was supposed to sell it to this one organization they said no and he priced it out and it was actually made more economic sense for him to compost all the cabbage as opposed to driving into Calgary and selling at the farmer's market. I'm just wondering how the food prices, people don't want these things to go up and there's legit reason, reasons for that. So I'm trying to figure out how we can make it worth a producer's while to get involved in something like FAIR, if this is making any sense. Yeah, or- no, that makes complete sense. And it's a fair question. No pun intended. Or maybe yeah. pun intended. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think you got to look at it from a few different angles. Number one, there's a lot of energy inputs that go into producing food, regardless of what it looks like. The energy inputs to that go into, using your example, growing a, a seconds or thirds cabbage mm. is the same energy inputs and labor inputs that go into making a single one. So that's one thing. Number two thing is that you need to create a market for those stuff. So if there were grocery stores like Fair Pantries that, that you know, incentivize seconds and thirds only, or the majority of it was seconds and thirds first before we took in grade A product, then there's a new market for that. That's number one. Number two, it's also about getting rid of current cosmetic standards. And I think you're going to start to see more of an influx in organizations like ours that run along those same things. 
where now let's get rid of mass packaged lettuces or cabbages or potatoes or whatever. That's one angle we look at it. Another angle is let's say, for example, you're a goat farmer and your job is to produce milk and cheese. Well, what do you do with all the billy goats? Mm. Cull them. Every single one happens all over the United Kingdom today. So I think there could be an educational component, an advocacy component that could we buy those male billy goats or could there be a tertiary business model for this farmer that raises those kid billy goats and now sells that as meat. So now they have dairy, they have cheese, they take those female ones and they become a little bit more mature and sell them for like slow cooking and all that kind of stuff that the majority of the world eats, Jamaican cuisine, Indian cuisine, so on and so forth. But those young billy goats is like eating lamb, a leaner version of lamb. And I think that there, there is actually a real market in that. Okay. Yeah. It, it, actually, this reminds me of a conversation we've had about beef before too, just like how much of a cow winds up going to being ground, ground beef. Exactly. Yeah. But like something what we were talking about was like, we could, it's not just about selling the, the waste or the food loss, whatever you want to call it. It's about almost like adding a premium or adding an extra value. value to it. Yeah, totally. exactly. It's yeah. all about adding value. And really what it's about is actually shifting how we think about the food system. Like that's really what fair communities in the business of doing. Yeah. Food waste is a byproduct of our business model and works well today. But there are huge players that are getting into this. Walmart, Sobeys, Amazon now through their ownership of um, of Whole Foods, Trader Joe's. You got all these really large grocery short chains that are trying to tackle their own internal waste systems and their own seconds and thirds. Hmm. So it's incumbent on businesses like ours to not build business models around sole food waste monetization. It's really about how we rethink about the food system, how we think about production of food, and how we get local products to local citizens. So can we have the majority of our grocery store, in this example, be stocked by product that was grown in a reasonable range? So let's say for a Calgary-based business, Let's say that's British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. If, say, I'm pulling this number out, Mm -hmm. say 70% of our products came from there. And what if there were some unique stories? So we're going to be in a really cool neighborhood, and you might be able to piece the neighborhood together. But there is a beehive in this neighborhood. Could we have all of the honey that we use in our our system produced from that hive? Mm. It's just down the street. There really is no transport cost or minimal maybe it could be done by bike okay and with those uh those big guys so like the walmarts and the sobeys and stuff like that you said that now they're starting to address their food loss and food waste are they doing that because this is like some sort of you know corporate csr play we just you know we want people to like us we want to be a good citizen or they're doing it because like oh no no we can make money off this um i know you don't work for any of them so it's kind of yeah. hard you don't know exactly i'm just yeah. like what, what's your gut telling you or what are your instincts telling you my instincts tell me that it's both okay and the reason why it's both is that i think big corporations have to do some form of csr that's what it's called and they have some profits that they can you know put towards that but number two they're also driven by shareholders now let me give a plug to some general shareholders right now Big corporations 
are not incentivized to change unless their shareholders tell them to. So what you're actually seeing is not only public pressure, but the people that financially run those organizations are saying, we want to see some change or we're going to pull out. Mm. And that's also kind of cool. So when you actually look at that whole system as, can you swear? Uh, (laughs) Kind of. We can bleep it out. Yeah, we'll bleep it out. But as effed as that system actually is of pure capitalism, Mm. there is a shift in how shareholder mentality is coming along. Mm. And you're seeing a shift out of oil and gas industry. You're seeing shifts towards different types of agricultural production, um, like lab-grown meats or crickets or any of that Mm. kind of stuff. So you're seeing that happen from the purse strings and from public. And that pressure is nearly impossible for large organizations, no matter how old and slow they are, to not listen to. Hmm. And then for agriculture producers, like the, the ones I work with and talk to, if they do want to kind of get in on this, they'll start selling their food waste, which I'm pretty sure about 100% of them do. Like, what are the steps you need to take? Uh, I, like, I wouldn't know right now where, so, you know, I'm growing, I'm going to grow peas, I'm going to grow, sorry, I'm not growing peas, uh, beans, <laughs> corn, and squash. I'm doing the three sisters this year. I'm sure some of that's not going to work out. But the seconds I have or the thirds I have, I don't know who I would give it to. Like, do I go, I can't go straight up to Walmart because they're probably not going to talk to me. Do, like, what do you think the next steps are in something like well, that? Well, I think there's, you need to build relationships with, with restaurateurs, first and foremost. Okay. And I think the one forgotten piece is that, you know, farmers on the small, on the smaller scale, mm. like yourself and some of your other colleagues in the farming industry immediately go to the market Mm. where I think it's kind of interesting to go to large buyers. So if we use knuckle, for example, we used to purchase 50 kilos of carrots every single week Okay, on an, on average, you know, it it increased in the month of July and August and June for, for events and whatever, whatever. But if you're only going to markets, you're just selling me maybe two, three carrots. It doesn't make any sense. Whatever I'm going to buy this week. Whereas if you start going to restaurant tours, there's actually something there in quantity that you can do. And then, you know, now there's juicing companies. That's where juicing carrots kind of go. And you've started to see actually now that some seconds and thirds have kind of created their own market. Mm. So juicing carrots being a good example of that. So the ones that aren't technically grade A, they're a little bit fatter, really sweet, are perfect for for juicing or turning into carrot cake or any of that kind of stuff. That's good. I think in that case too, like those restaurateurs, they have that food literacy too, whereas in other cases... I can't think of a good example. Yeah. Some folks like, what the heck am I supposed to do with a carrot that looks like a, I don't know, a baseball or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But yeah, you're saying a restaurant tour, like they've, they've worked with food for a while. They, they know like, no, 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 there's value in this right here. Totally. Like I've always said, if you want to challenge, tackle hunger, you need to talk to people who actually produce food and that's chefs. Mm. So we need to get more chefs into the conversation around tackling some of these social issues mm. and food production is part of that. You know, you, you need to look at it that way. I think- And also like, you know, just talking to the farmers that I've spoken to, like yourself, and even over the years since I've run run Nakwa and also been in the food and beverage industry, essentially my entire life, I think that it's easy to go to the market because it's one stop. I'm going to take this product, go to one place, and we'll see what sells. Whereas going down the restaurateur route is a lot more time, time sensitive. Mm. And farmers don't have a lot of time. So you're kind of between a rock and a hard place where the best business decision doesn't actually correlate with the best decision of your time because you're resource intensive. 
Totally. But the interesting thing about that, I find, I haven't talked to a whole bunch of people that own restaurants like you have, but the ones that I come across, like half the time, like, oh, can you connect me to the farmers, please? I'm like, well, the farmers want to be, it's almost like we need like some sort of like speed dating event for all these guys just to like hook up. And this is where I think. it's more than a one night stand. It's a long lasting relationship, you know? And this is actually where I think part of our fair certified farm idea kind of comes from. It's not only certifying a farm from a, from a production perspective and a, and an output perspective and inputs, like all, all assets of that. It's also about the idea of if they're working together, say cooperatively, and it could be, a, it doesn't have to be all the exact same products. Say you have a whole bunch of fruit producers and vegetable producers and meat producers, they all work together. And part of that certification program is then the exchange. So we have a network on the other side of buyers that want those products. Mm. And then if we could piggyback off of an already existing supply chain, now you're talking about something really meaningful. And this is where the whole idea of actually we need to fundamentally shift how we think about producing food, buying food, and selling food. And how do we do that? That's like a perfect question to end this whole thing on. Yeah. I don't have all the answers. I think we may have built a better mousetrap. You know, we're still obviously testing some different ideas out and doing some engagement and doing all that kind of stuff. But we won't really know the fruits of our labor, another pun intended. (laughs) You're killing it. Until we're open and we start to see what the reaction is. But I think because meaningful engagement at all levels is done early and often and then post operations that is the secret sauce because oftentimes and i'm kind of generalizing you have consultation when things go belly up sure yeah it's nice to think about developing a model that has input at all stages and regular check-ins And as we continue to evolve and grow the business model, we'll be able to start figuring out. And, you know, this exchange or Fair Certified Farms is the other business unit within Fair called Fair Harvest. And this is also why I think we have a great name. Everything is about being fair. And it's really about quadruple wins for everybody. It's not just one side. We're a business. We need to make money. That's it. Because like I said, In order to build a successful business, it has to be in a successful community. Mm. You can't have one without the other. And building that community is more than just customers. It's about our farmers. It's about our trades workers. It's about the city. It's about all of that kind of stuff. And when you start to look at our partnerships, I remember when we were doing some space planning in one of our design shreds for FAIR, we we had a whole wall, I don't know, five feet high filled with the current partners we already have and everybody at the table said it was unbelievable and daunting and i think that's a testament to how we've built this organization over this period of time and we'll continue building this organization in that way rural roots to climate solutions is an alberta-based project empowering agricultural producers with climate solutions rural roots runs workshops and farm field days produces this podcast series and hosts webinars The next field day is on Thursday, June 20th at the Brenton Plots, and it's all about perennial grains production and soil health. For more information and to register, please go to the website www.rr2cs.ca.
The Real Roots team is made up of Angie O'Connor, Marie Golanka, Evelyn Tanaka, and Derek Leahy. The podcast is funded by the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta. Today's episode was recorded at Media Lab YYC in Calgary and was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media in Red Deer. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.